Hello, and welcome to the Den of Geek Book Club podcast. My name is Katie Burt, and I am the books editor at denofgeek.com. Today, we are talking to Mary Robinette Qual, the author of the Lady Astronaut series, which began with the Hugo Award-winning novelette, The Lady Astronaut of Mars, and continues in dual prequel novels, The Calculating Stars and The Faded Sky. Okay, so... The world explored in your in your novels, The Calculating Stars and The Faded Sky, began as a novelette in The Lady Astronaut of Mars. So can you tell me about what led to that transition from, you know, just this novelette to telling a prequel story that's set 30 years prior in the same world following the same character? Sure. So one of the things about The Lady Astronaut of Mars is that it follows a much older woman, uh, older than we usually see as a protagonist. And there's a couple of things that are clear from her backstory. One is that she went into space in the 1950s, and the other is that an asteroid had hit the Earth. And um, those are kind of an interesting (laughs) space. Uh, One of the things that kept going through my head was someone would have to be really extraordinary, a woman would have to be really extraordinary to get into the space program at that time, since... In the real world, uh, although we we had a couple of uh, Russian women go into space in the 1960s, uh, there was then a 20-year gap, so people didn't start doing that, uh, didn't start letting women into space until the 1980s. So I was interested in kind of all of the the baggage that would go with being someone who was an extraordinary woman in the sciences in the 1950s. Um, and also what uh, what the civil rights movement was going to look like uh, when you've got this sudden out, ex- outside pressure of um, asteroid hitting the Earth and completely shaking up everything. So there was just a lot of material that was kind of sitting there waiting in the backstory, and I wanted to dig into it. Yeah, there's so much, and I was curious... Um, how much of that, you know, was already in your mind as part of Elma's backstory and part of the backstory of the meteorite hitting Earth? Like, how much did you already know going into writing these these prequel novels and how much of it was a discover, discovery along the way? It was a mix. Uh, there were some things that I was very clear about with Elma. I knew that she had gone to school at a very young age. Mm. Um, and uh, I knew that she had obviously been a pilot. Um, I knew that she had been uh, in the computing department. So there were things like that that I knew. Uh, A lot of the other stuff were things that I sorted out when I I actually sat down to develop the novel. Um, Like I knew that she was Southern when I wrote the uh, novelette, uh, although I later realized it was not very clearly on the page that Mm -hmm. she was Southern. Um, So I, I made... I made that much clearer. I did not know when I wrote the novelette, interestingly, uh, that she was Jewish, okay. uh, which was something that I uh, that is actually very important to her character and that I unearthed or, or added when I was working on the, the novel. And, and I didn't know that she, uh, she had a background with an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that um, is in a lot of ways influenced by my uh, my relationship with uh, my mother and my grandmother, who are both remarkable Southern women. And, you know, you see them and they just seem in control. And then 
when you start finding out stories about their life and you hear the story of, of being nervous or being afraid to speak and, and having to overcome that and realizing that they have overcome it so well that it's completely invisible now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, that was one of my favorite parts of the story and something I was going to ask you about because it seems like, um, you know, anxiety or depression or any struggle with uh, mental illness is starting to become more common in science fiction and genre fiction, but it still feels like a breath of fresh air when I read examples of it. So I really, I really enjoyed that aspect of Elma's character and was curious to know if you knew about it when you were writing, writing The Lady Astronaut of Mars, because yeah, she's, it's, it's not really in there, but I, I wasn't sure if that just wasn't a part of a part of the story, but it was still a part of her character. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's not something that I knew about her. One of the interesting things about the difference between writing short fiction and writing novels is that novel readers are, are kind of looking for immersion. Mm. So they assume that anything that you leave out is something you haven't thought about. Yeah. And short story readers assume that anything you put in is something that is important to the story and that if you've left it out, it, it just wasn't important. They're used to drawing a lot of inferences. So with short fiction, I often wind up doing... Uh, less research um, and a little less digging into who the character is because I don't have to provide the same sort of immersive experience that I am trying to provide for a novel reader. Even though the tools for providing those things are are the same tools, it's just you're looking to provide a different experience as the end result. Um, The other thing, and I I don't feel like it was cheating to have either of those, to add either of those things Mm. to her character. And that was, I mean, that was actually... So part of what I was looking at, uh, and it was, you know, this this sounds very deliberate and calculating, um, <laughs> is that there are axes of power that we all exist on. Uh, and some of us are, you know, at a dominant end of, the, of that particular spectrum and others, other places were in a subordinate end. So like uh, using myself as an example, you know, I'm white, which is in the United States at the dominant end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm at a, wo- I'm a woman uh, but I'm cisgendered, so that means that although I'm not at the dominant end of the spectrum, I'm also not all the way at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of uh, dominance and subordinates. Uh, and and so what I was looking at with Elma was in Lady Astronaut of Mars, um, she's 63, which is at the lower end, you know, on the age spectrum. For a woman who's an astronaut, that's at the, the bottom end. Of, of that spectrum of dominance. And uh, she was also a caretaker, which is, again, you know, at the bottom end of a, a dominant spectrum. Yeah, well, it's interesting to see how those identities, um, you know, are perceived by the public or used by the, right. the space program differently when she's, you know, living in this world in the 1950s um, on Earth versus living on Mars um, yeah. later on. Yeah. Exactly. And and so one of the problems that I had when I was going back into her youth is that I was taking a someone I was I was moving her to the upper end of a spectrum. So I was mm. then I suddenly had a character who was brilliant at math and could fly and was in prime fitness and I'm like she has no weaknesses. What are the what are the the axes that I can can shift? 
that are, that are not cheating that, that could plausibly have shifted over the course of her life mm-hmm. and her relationship with her anxiety and, and PTSD. You know, she's, she's coping with a, we, we focus on the anxiety because that's the thing that gets diagnosed, but she's dealing with a significant amount of PTSD. Yeah, the opening to this book is intense. <laughs> and also, what what a wonderful introduction to this character if you haven't read the novelette. She's, she's so in her... I mean, she's not in her element. She's reacting because how can you even be prepared for something like that? Right. But, um, but she's just so competent. <laughs> and that confidence saves her and it saves her husband. And that's just a really cool way to be introduced to her character. Um, and you obviously, you know you still see that she's mortal and like has, has weaknesses, but to, to start there with her, um, I think is, is really great. And I was immediately hooked into this world. Victory. (laughs) I also, the, the day, night after I started reading it, I actually had a dream that the world was ending and I was like, I was Elma like trying to escape. It was very intense. Oh yeah. So, um, the book came out on, on July 3rd, which is a Tuesday. Uh, and it was the first Tuesday of the month, which is significant because in Chicago, that's the day that they test the air raid sirens. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and, you know, totally immersed in book, 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 and the air raid sirens start going off. <laughs> Even though I know, yeah, there's this brief part of my brain that's like, Meteor! <laughs> this is it! <laughs> this is the end times! Uh. Like, oh, yeah. One of the things I could deeply relate to as well about how that, um, that event unfolds in terms of the discussions that we're hearing about from Nathaniel, where he's talking with these generals of the president is just like his constant effort to try to convince them that it's not Russia's fault, um, is really deeply relatable and kind of sad, but yeah, yeah, that was, that was a great, great detail. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's interesting because you're you're releasing these books in kind of a um, non-traditional way in the sense that, so the Calculating Stars was released on July 3rd, as you mentioned, and then uh, The Faded Sky comes out on August 21st. So did that, I wonder, did you know that going in, that they would be released so close closely to one another? And did that affect how you decided to tell the story, or did you treat it very, you know, as you would any other book? Um, it's a, a little bit of a mix. When I started writing Calculating Stars, I, I actually thought that it was only one book. Um, and so at, at a certain point when I was uh, writing it, I realized that that I needed to split Faded Sky. <laughs> You're like, I'm on page 400 and it's only halfway through. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't actually that. Um, because I, uh, But what was happening was that in order to to have it work structurally... In, in that format, I was having to um, I was having to skip emotional beats mm-hmm. um, and and truncate stuff, and it was it, it was not going to be satisfying for a novel reader because what I was basically doing was structuring it as three novel uh, three novellas that were sandwiched into a single book. And the first you know quote novella is still more or less intact as part one mm-hmm. of of calculating stars. Um, so, so I went to my editor and said, ah, I, I think there's actually two books here and explained the structural problems of having to skip stuff. And she agreed with me. And, and so, so I had already begun working on Faded Sky 
as part of the original calculating stars structure. And as we were, as I was, I, I wasn't very far into that, that new version uh, when she came back to me and Tor proposed uh, releasing them back to back. Um, because they knew how fast I uh, how fast I write, mm. um, and since the other one was to a degree already underway, uh, it meant uh, calculating stars was the original plan was that it was going to come out last year, and so it meant that I had to write both books on a very accelerated timeline in order to have them come out this year. Because, again, under normal circumstances, the way that all would have worked, if we had wanted them both to come out back-to-back uh, and, and timelines, it, we probably would have just pushed everything to, to next year. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go that far without <laughs> books out in the world. Do you have a preference for readers? Like, do, Would you like for them to read The Lady Astronaut of Mars first? Or do you care? Because obviously it's written first, but it's set later in, in the timeline of this world. I, I do not care. Um, <laughs> I, I've actually worked really hard when I was um, hitting the scenes in uh, Calculating Stars and Faded Sky that are flashbacks. So in Lady Astronaut of Mars, there are flashback scenes. And so they occur in these novels mm. uh, in, in a more fleshed out format. And um, so I worked very hard to make sure that if you read Calculating Stars and then Faded Sky and you hit Lady Astronaut, that it has one kind of resonance, and that if you read Lady Astronaut and then you start Calculating Stars, that there is uh, also a resonance, but it's it's a slightly different... Either way, you get, uh, hopefully, a bittersweetness, mm-hmm. um, whether you're viewing them in the same order that Elma experiences them uh, or, or not. Um, uh, but it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you can approach it either way. It is probably better to read Calculating Stars before Faded Sky. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know about... what? You do you. <laughs> right, exactly. But but Lady Astronaut, you can go either way. Yeah, I actually read the first 100 pages of Calculating Stars and then read Lady Astronaut of Mars and then read the rest of Calculating Stars. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is strange. But... Um, it was interesting because there are, I think there are benefits to doing either where, you know, there you lose a certain maybe like narrative tension when you know where Elma ends up. Um, but also you get this, yeah, you get this added layer and like dramatic irony that wasn't there before when you know where, where Elma ends up. So yeah, I think either way would work really well. Yeah, it's been interesting with this book because because Lady Astronaut of Mars exists and it has that title... <laughs> um, and and we refer to it on the back cover and stuff. I'm like, none of the narrative tension in this book can come from whether or not she gets into mm-hmm. space. It all has to come from how she gets into space, and uh, and the the ramifications of that. It, it it was very interesting to have that as a just a structural truth running running through the writing process. Yeah, it's really interesting in relationship in relation to Alma's relationship with Nathaniel, her husband, because um, I realized, you know, when I was reading it before having read The Lady Astronaut of Mars, um, I kept coming up against these assumptions of how their relationship would play within this world, because I think I'm so conditioned, especially with reading stories with um, female protagonists how, who are ambitious or whose professional life is very important to them. Um, 
yeah, forcing them to choose or how that creates all these obstacles in their personal life. And like, of course there are issues of that, but their relationship is such a partnership and Nathaniel is so, um, so supportive of her, um, in so many ways that even before I read the lady astronaut of Mars, I quickly under started to understand how this wasn't, this wasn't falling into certain tropes or certain patterns. Um, and yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about that and talk about how you imagine their, you know, their relationship going back after having it be such a central part of the lady astronaut of Mars. Um, just like how you saw their relationship as part of this story as part as different in different phases of Elma's Elma's life. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I knew going in from the get go was that, uh, I, I did not want to do the, the break up and get back together mm. trope because I, I hate that. I hate that a lot. Um, as a, as a trope. And anyone who's been in a happy, committed relationship knows that there's still tension. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that you don't ever argue. It's not that there's not stresses, but I wanted them to be stresses that turned up because of outside for- forces rather than, um, than having having any questions or any doubts about the relationship itself, the, you know, that was always going to be solid. Um, and a lot of it, it's a lot of it is based on my relationship with my husband. Mm-hmm. In in fact, I will say that one of the the things that I I see some of the you know some people saying, and I do read Goodreads, um, <laughs> but occasionally occasionally there will be someone either in Goodreads or one of the professional reviews. Uh, that says, oh, this relationship, you know, they, this is completely unbelievable. He, he, you know, they, he's, he's too nice. They, they you know, there's, I'm like, no, actually this is, I, I'm very sad for you and the relationships that you've had in your life that this seems unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is pretty true to life. Uh, and the other thing is, um, which, which I think some people miss, uh, is, you know, Nathaniel knows that he's married to someone with an anxiety disorder. Mm. Uh, and so he, when he sees her starting to have a panic attack, he backs the hell off. Yeah. At the same time, he does not give up his own desires for her. Um, you know, that's that was also something that I felt was really important, is that they could be in a happy, committed relationship with conflicting career desires and still and still be functional. My husband and I, again, using us as a model, um, I'm a, besides the writer thing, I'm a professional puppeteer, mm-hmm. and he's a winemaker and is often gone during harvest, and I will leave to go do puppetry or theater work. So for the first three years that we were married, we did the math, and we were only together for eight months of that. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's very, and we're not, you know, we're not an isolated example of this, but it isn't something that you see in fiction. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to to depict that. It's like, look, this is a this is a thing that can happen. There are other models. We we internalize so much from the fiction that we read that that I, I feel like 
you know, we, we say representation matters, and it matters on a number of different levels, and one of them is um, what a healthy relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. And also just, you know, there's all this talk about creating more sto- more different kinds of female characters, which is so incredibly important, but it seems like there's less conversation about what different, like, male characters can look like and different mas- masculinities can look like, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's... That's part of what creates toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and actually, with uh, this is a tangent, but um, <laughs> I love tangents. Great, <laughs> good. Uh, but that's um, that's the the representing different types of of people. One of the reasons it was important for me for Alma to be Southern um, is that it is not uh, I. I I am from the South, and I almost uh, never see in mainstream media a Southern woman in the sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like when I did the audiobook, I, you know, I, I turned on. It's not, it's not a real thick accent, but it is definitely there. She is not, she is not from the Midwest, you know. And it is, it was real important to me that that she she sound she sounds Southern, and that she not be ashamed of the way she sounds which is something that happens to a lot of us that we're trained to um, to submerge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also uh, with the Judaism as well, I wanted her to, you know, she's a, she's a, she was raised secular. Um, and a lot of the things that she, she goes to uh, for comfort are part of her culture and... And, and they are important to her, but um, but I also didn't want her to be. I, I mean, she's basically she's reflecting the the women that I'm friends with, um, who again I don't see in fiction. It, it it one of the things that I also find frustrating is that you know we'll let Christian characters be casually Christian mm. in a book. But if we insert anybody else, I say insert, if we represent anybody else who would naturally be there, they have to be like profoundly devout and it's uh, all of the things. and <laughs> The main part of their identity or the largest part exactly, of their identity. Exactly. And, and, you know, and a major plot point. And it's, it's not a plot point. You know, it's, it's part of how she moves through the world. It affects the way she sees things. Um, but, uh, but it's... But she's also just allowed to be Jewish, um, and she's allowed to just be Southern. Uh, she's not allowed to just be a woman, however, because it is the 1950s and we do have sexism. Yep. <laughs> um, so you've now written two novels and one novelette set in this world. Um, do you want to write more stories set in this in this world, or would you like to to move on to something else? Oh, oh, there's uh, there are. Th- Three other stories set in this world. <laughs> oh, tell me more. Um, so there's uh, actually the first story that I set in this world. If you read, which is also chronologically the first story, uh, which is we interrupt this broadcast, uh, which is about the meteor strike, um, and it, uh, but it is information that no one in the world actually ever knows. Um, okay. Because everyone involved, uh, it ends badly for them. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we, we have interrupt this. We interrupt this broadcast uh, chronologically speaking. Uh, then we have calculating stars, 
um, uh, then we have uh, articulated restraint, which is not out yet. Uh, then we have faded sky. Then there is um, rockets red, uh, which is not with Elma. She's a secondary character, or not even secondary. She like walks through backstage. Um, uh, which is basically about someone trying to do a, the, the first fireworks display on Mars, yeah. uh, which is a serious challenge because of the atmosphere. Um, and, uh, and then the Phobos experience, which is uh, uh, actually out right now in the, uh, the current issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and that is a rollicking space adventure with pirates. <gasps> Sold. <laughs> I just wrote all of those down, so. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And speaking of characters randomly um, walking through your stories, um, Mm. I listened to the Verity podcast, which, for listeners who don't know, is a wonderful podcast uh, featuring women talking about Doctor Who. Um, And I believe it was there where they mentioned that you sometimes include Doctor Who as, like, an Easter egg character kind of in, in your books where it's not, it's like just an unnamed random character. Um, yeah. I just want to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and by sometimes what they mean is always, um, <laughs> he is in fact, and he, uh, I don't have to use that. They, uh, they, they <laughs> are in, yay. This makes me so happy. Um, they are in, uh, every single novel. Um, Ooh. Uh, so far, uh, always in masculine presentation because, uh, until, until, uh, very recently, I didn't know that I was allowed to, mm. to go the, the full spectrum there. Um, so, uh, for, for readers, the, the basic key is that if you're reading about a character and the character is referred to as the doctor and I never give a, a surname, um, it is the doctor. The, the one exception to that is in Shades of Milk and Honey, which is my first novel, where it's Dr. Smith, mm. um, because he often used John Smith when, uh, when it, it was John Pertwee, uh, and used John Smith as his, his pseudonym. Um, that so, is so cool. Yes, for the, the ones, for people looking in uh, Calculating Stars, uh, it's page 199. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go back and read that. um so i mean this is this is a tangent but i feel like relevant to many den of geek listeners which is so you're excited for the 13th doctor i'm assuming (laughs) just a little bit just a little bit excited yeah Yeah. do you have any like specific hopes or like wish list items are you just like i'm here i'm ready whatever happens um i just i've been excited seeing the the new writers and uh, that they're bringing in and directors and i just want it to not suck yeah that's i have a very low bar I'm i like, know. just don't suck <laughs> that's all i ask um I, I you know i i will say that um i am i am seriously hoping that there is no grabbing of boobs and oh i have these now mm. um because i see that in a lot of uh, body swap films and it kind of makes me a little nuts. Mm. Uh, and, and I figure this is probably hopefully not the first time that the doctor has, uh, regenerated as a woman. Mm. Um, all right. So I, I like, I would really like that to not be the case. Um, but we'll, we'll see. 
We'll see. <laughs> uh, and what are what are you working on right now? If you can talk about it. Sure. I am, uh, well, I'm working on a, a top secret project that I cannot talk about. So there, haha. Nice. I mean, um, everyone needs to have a top secret project. Whatever else exactly. you're doing. Even if you don't actually have a top secret project, I feel like you should say you have a top secret project. Yes. I do have a top secret project, which is, uh, in theory, coming out in November. Okay. Uh, and I'll be able to talk about it sooner than that, but not today. Um, uh, what I'm working on right now is a... Uh, in novel length is a Hitchcockian suspense thriller with dragons. Mm. I've I've described it as Alfred Hitchcock presents the Dragon Riders of Pern. Oh man, that sounds great. So uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. It's I'm I'm in the the final throes of it. So <laughs> the part where it's like, really do hard. Do you like being in that in that phase, or you're like this is the worst? No, this is the worst. <laughs> This is the worst. Because the first part, you're just opening up questions and you don't have to answer them. And at the end, you have to answer all of the yeah. questions that you've opened up. And you have to tie everything up. And and it's just like, oh, this is hard. I always bog down when I get to the end. It's like the, the last two-thirds to three-quarters of a novel, I always bog down. And then once I get through that and I'm in the last, like, the last, I don't know, eighth of the novel, the last several chapters, mm-hmm. it just flies uh, but I'm in, I'm in the bogging down spot right now. Which is... <laughs> so you're like, it's nice to have distractions talking, talking oh. to podcast people. Yeah. Especially about a book that is already written. Right. Right. <laughs> to solve problems for. <laughs> um, so where can people find you either online or if you have any upcoming public appearances? Uh, actually, uh, the answer to both of those is to head to my website, maryrobinettekowal.com, which is an incredibly long thing. <laughs> Um, uh, or actually, if you want a faster way to get there, you can get, you can type in lady, lady astronaut club, um, which will take you to a, uh, landing page on my website for the lady astronaut club, but you can get to the main thing. Um, so go to my website, uh, it's got an event list or you can sign up for my newsletter mm. and, uh, with my newsletter, you get stories occasionally like for your birthday, um, and, uh, and, and we'll email you about uh, when I'm making appearances and also occasionally invite you to do beta reading. Ooh, that was a good, that was a good pitch. Ah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so The Calculating Stars is out now, and The Faded Sky will be released on August 21st. And you can also read The Lady Astronaut of Mars online at tour.com. So thank you so much for talking with me today, Mary. <laughs> thank you, Katie. It was an absolute delight. Same. <laughs>